The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To worship God by hearing from His Word, I invite you to open to the book of Leviticus. We continue our study through Leviticus, and we have honed in on this fourth commandment that we see in Leviticus 23, verse 3. The reason why we've slowed down and honed in on this is because this is one of those commandments that get severely disregarded in our day, even in the church. So Leviticus 23, 3. Let's give our attention to God as he speaks to us in his word. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Well, that concludes the reading of God's word. May he now be pleased to add his blessing to the preaching of it. When we continue our study of the fourth commandment, the first two weeks we considered why the fourth commandment is still perpetual, why we don't scratch it out or cross it out. And we dealt with some objections last week particularly a couple of New Testament passages, Colossians 2.16, which says, see to it that no one, re, uh, no one judges you with regards to new moon and Sabbaths, and Romans 14.5, regard, some people regard every day alike, while others regard uh, days differently. We dealt with objections uh, to the Sabbath from those passages. We saw that those were Jewish in context. And then we dealt with where the fourth commandment says, that you keep the seventh day holy, and here we are on the first day of the week. Why the day change? How are we fulfilling the commandment when it says the seventh commandment? Well, we covered that last week. If you missed, if you have questions about that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But once you start to see that the fourth commandment is still a commandment from God, that it's not the nine commandments, but the tenth commandment, and you are a Christian who wants to keep God's commandments, and not just live however you please, knowing that Christ did call us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. The next question that comes up is this. Well, what can or can't I do on this day then? A lot of questions come up, and those are good questions. Now, we're going to cover spe- more specifics next week. This week, I just want to lay a general foundation I want to provide a framework. I want to provide a frame before we look at the painting itself, if you will. Now, what I want us to consider today is the nature of the day, the nature of the Sabbath. And that's because you know better what to do with something when you know what it is. So one of the things that uh, frightened me is when, with my first kid, the doctor hands our first newborn child to us, it says, here you go. Like, is there a manual with this? You know, it's like this is a, a human being we're called to raise. And uh, I get a manual with my car. <laughs> is there a manual? That, how do I take care uh, of a child? Well, while we didn't have a list, uh, we knew that, okay, this is a baby, so we don't roughhouse it. We don't uh, expect to get, to get a job, even though there's nothing, you know, where we looked at a list and said, okay, with the baby, don't expect to get a job. Oh, okay, now I get it. 
No, we know based on the nature of uh, the, the thing that this is a baby, that there's certain ways to handle her. And the same could be true when it comes to when they get older. Okay, they're four or five. Okay, now there's some rough housing. Um, okay, you're 20 years old. The rough housing is over because I'm too old and you'll beat me. But you need to go out and get a job now. Something that we wouldn't say to uh, an infant. And you can even consider you know, the baptismal. You know, fill it up for a baptism. And then suddenly in the middle of the service, some kid runs up and, and dives into it. We say, what are you doing? You can't do that. Well, I didn't see a sign that said I couldn't. Well, what would be the response? This is a baptismal during a church service. This is not a swimming pool, so you don't dive in. Based on the nature of the thing, we get an idea of what we are to do with it. Well, and that's the same with the Sabbath. That's really the foundation. So what is the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath day is a day of rest and worship. The Sabbath day is a day of worship. And it's realizing that the Sabbath day is first and foremost a day of worship that then helps us to better understand what to do with this day. Now, it doesn't answer all the questions. And again, we'll cover some specifics next week, but even that's not going to answer all the questions. But at least having this framework, first and foremost, helps us to understand then what we are to do on this day. However, when I say a day of worship, even that requires some explanation. Because the next question then is, what is worship? And you can perhaps give a definition. Well, worship, ascribing worth to God. Okay, well, what does that mean uh, specifically in our public setting? Because in our culture, worship is thought of rather differently than the way the scriptures portray it. Oftentimes, worship is thought to be an experience that stands out. Uh, you, you'll hear people say things like, that was really worshipful. And what they're referring to is an amazing, moving experience that's really stood out. Uh, this is probably why in many circles worship gets narrowed down to only the music. Uh, I've heard this on a number of occasions. Wow, the worship today in service was outstanding. And what they're referring to is only the music. Only the music gets called Worship rather than the entire worship service. Even what we're doing now is worship by hearing the preaching of God's word. And that's oftentimes because the music uh, is associated with something that really stands out. Something that really stirs the soul. Something that can really move us. I remember a time when a, a friend of mine ran a marathon. He's a, he's a Christian and he ran a marathon, and uh, what's a marathon, what, 26 miles or something like that, a really long distance that I can't even imagine doing perhaps in a year. But he ran it, and he got to the finish line, and there was some triumphal music at the finish line. And he broke down in tears and started to cry. He was really moved by the music. 
this triumphal music, perhaps because he pushed through and accomplished something, but he really couldn't understand. But music can be very emotion-evoking. And so sometimes we think that we have truly reached worshiping God when I was moved greatly by an experience or by the music. But we can have these same experiences in the secular realm. You can go to an orchestra, a symphony, a drama, or a play, and be greatly moved by it, even to tears. Were you worshiping God in that moment? Well, you can appreciate some of the things that God has uh, created, but that doesn't really mean that you are worshiping God, because your unbelieving uh, neighbor, the person sitting next to you, can have the same moving experience by, by that. Uh, we weren't so much worshiping God as much as we were moved by the beauty of an art. Many times in our day, worship of God is associated with an extraordinary, surprising event. It wasn't the mere predictable, same old routine of the church service, which we often associate with dead orthodoxy. This is the common belief over the last about 100 years or so, that in order for it to be of the Spirit, it needs to be unpredictable. It needs to break out of the ordinary uh, uh, means. It, if it was not ordinary and not predictable, not this road act of man, and lifted, up, lifted us to new heights, then certainly it was of the Spirit, we say. Oftentimes you hear people say, uh, the work, the Spirit still works today. And when they say that, what they're saying is that it's an extraordinary, miraculous gift. Oftentimes the work of the Spirit is only associated with extraordinary, miraculous things. Right now, as he does every Lord's Day, the Spirit is at work. He is at work through ordinary means. When you take the Lord's Supper later on, the Spirit will be working. He is working through ordinary means. Do you feel something? Does something zap? Does something stand out? No. But the Word of God says that He works through these means, even if we don't detect them. But oftentimes, it has to be something detectable, something that stands out. And then it was of the Spirit. That's how our culture tends to associate the work of the Spirit in worship. Also, quite often, true worship is viewed as private rather than public. Yeah, sure, going to church, public worship, yeah, that's important. But the real meat, true worship, is when I am alone with God. That's when it's genuine. And that's when it is sincere, sincere is what we say. Uh, the belief that private worship is the height of worship is expressed in the song, I Come to the Garden Alone. You heard that song? Yeah, I, the lyrics go like this, speaking about coming to, to the garden alone and being with God. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Whoa, that's a statement. You see the belief here. This private time with God alone is like none other. In fact, it's like none other 
that anyone has known. That my experience, my private experience with God, no one has experienced it. It's in the lyrics of this song. Now, it would obviously, that it's obviously true that we worship God privately. And if we didn't, we would be hypocrites. If we just came here on Sunday and didn't worship God throughout the week in, in prayer, in meditation, in having communion with God, in uh, meditating on His Word. However, private worship has become the epitome of worship, while public worship kind of takes a, a back row seat. Uh, we say things like, well, I don't want uh, to be a Sunday-only Christian, and so I don't want to make church that big of a deal. Today we focus on devotions, and when I say devotion, what comes in your mind? Like my private Bible reading, right? Well, this is devotion. We're being devoted to God in the hearing of His Word and singing His praises. But when we think of devotion, because of our culture, we automatically think of private. We automatically think of our private Bible reading and prayer time, which, of course, we don't want to discourage. Those are good things. Those are things that we want to be engaged in. But God explicitly commands us to set aside this day for worship while he nowhere explicitly commands setting aside daily periods of Bible reading. And I have often heard out here in the West, well, I go out into the mountains to worship God. You know, I don't need to go to a building. The church is wherever you are. And while it's true that the, the church is not the building, but the people, yet it is the people of God collectively are gathered that is the church. Uh, do, do you know what the definition of church is? Uh, the definition of church is an assembly. That's the definition of church, an assembly. A gathering of God's people. That is the definition of church. Sometimes you'll hear the saying, we're not having church this Sunday. If, if, you, hear, if you ever hear me say that, fire me. We're not having church this Sunday. Go and be the church. Be the church by not gathering. In this definition, being the church is scattering out into the world. And uh, of course, we need to be faithful in being engaged uh, with our culture and the world and being good witnesses of Christ, evangelizing when we have the opportunity, being active uh, in the world. But scattering is literally the exact opposite definition of church. You're the church when you're gathered, not when you're scattered. Uh, you're, you're still a Christian and a part of the people of God, even when you're not in uh, the assembly, but the definition of church is gathering, is assembly, is when you're together, not when you're scattered. The people of God are called to gather together for corporate and public worship every Lord's Day, whether or not they have a building. While we do worship God in our daily private lives, yet 
This is not to the exclusion of the gathering on the Lord's Day, which is commanded. Now, that's a long introduction. And the reason I bring up uh, these sorts of beliefs um, is because these are the beliefs or emphases in our culture that are used to render the Sabbath or Lord's Day really irrelevant. If worship is all the same, if I can just do it whenever, if I can just, if worship is just me sitting down reading my Bible in the morning with coffee, and it's no different than anything else, or if it's just me getting together with a few other believers or going to the mountains, then what is necessary about gathering together on the Lord's Day for worship? What's even special about it? And so we need to answer the question, what do we mean when we say that the Sabbath or the Lord's Day is a day of worship? What's special about it and what's necessary about it? And then that provides a framework for what we do on this day. So two components that make the Lord's Day a special and necessary day of worship. First, the assembly. and Second, meeting with Christ. We're going to spend most of our time on the assembly. So first, the assembly. God's people are called to assemble or gather together for public worship. Now, when we think of public worship, uh, we think of going to church. That's, that's what we usually call it in our day, to use our vernacular. But you will look in vain for the phrase, go to church in the Bible. So how does the Bible tell us this? Well, what we call going to church, the Bible calls the assembly or the congregation or at times gathering together. And this is all over the Bible. The word congregation or assembly refers to the assembled people of God. The people of God gathered together for public worship. That's what congregation and assembly refers to when you see that word in the Bible. The word congregation is found 150 times in the Bible. And the word assembled or assembly, which is a synonym of congregation, is used 175 times in the Bible. It's obviously important. I think we miss it because we don't associate congregation or assembly with going to church with public worship, but that's what it refers to. And the day of this assembly or gathering for worship is the Sabbath day. Look at, again, Leviticus 23.3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. Now, convocation is just a synonym of the word congregation or assembly. A convocation is a gathering together public worship. So when you think of the Sabbath day, you should think of these two things. Rest and public worship. Holy rest and holy assembly. It was a day, notice, not merely of rest, but notice the kind of rest. Solemn rest. Solemn rest. Am I saying that right? Solemn. Solemn rest. Holy rest, a certain type of rest that had some referential significance that was directed to God. It was not whatever I deem restful or relaxing 
or getting some extra sleep. Well, I'm sleeping in today because I get up early the rest of the week. And it's a day of rest. I'm going to sleep in and miss church because I want to rest. Rather, it was resting from ordinary activities in order to be directed towards God. In order to have our thoughts directed towards worshiping God. We get busy. We have a lot of things on our schedule. And God is essentially saying, clear your schedule, because you need rest, but also clear your schedule so that you observe this holy day. And a big part of this day, the other part, is that it's a convocation, which is just another way of saying assembly or congregation, the people of God gathered for worship. Now, under the Old Covenant, they would have extra gatherings and feasts throughout the year, but setting aside one day in seven, they still did. Nothing trumped that. And the Sabbath day was the day to assemble, to gather for worship, a holy convocation. The Sabbath day is the day of the assembly. Now, there were some differences with the Old Testament congregation. They had special feasts. Uh, They had special gatherings. They had to go to a specific spot. They had to go to the physical tabernacle or the physical temple where God's special presence was. But we still see a lot of similarities between the congregation in the Old Testament and the congregation in the New Testament. Our assembling together today is not utterly and completely different as if the entire building was detonated and the foundation removed and God did something different. Rather, our assembly is founded in pattern after the Old Testament. Uh, The congregation was the place where the praises of God were sung and overseen by elders. After the psalmist in Psalm 107 asked, how should someone express their gratitude for God saving them? How should someone give thanks to God for all His rich mercies? He answers in verse 32, let them extol God in the congregation and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. Notice the scripture here even gives the place where God wants our thanksgiving expressed. Praising God, extolling Him in the congregation. And again, what is that? That's this. That is the assembly of God's people. When we think of praising God, what do we tend to think of? We tend to think of privately only. Now, of course we praise God privately. Of course we give Him thanks without ceasing privately. But here God says, I want you to give me thanks, and here's where I want you to do it. In the congregation, which implies what? That you gather with the people of God to sing His praises and give Him thanks. Psalm 135.18 says the same thing. The psalmist there says, I will thank you in the great congregation. 
And in Psalm 22, 2, which Hebrews 2.12 says, this is Jesus speaking, this is precisely where Christ Himself sings praises to God. It says, I will sing praises in the congregation. Did you know that Jesus, by His Spirit, joins us in singing praises to God? And that's why it matters what we sing. While we certainly do praise Him privately, Scripture also calls us to praise Him publicly. In the congregation, it is a command for public worship. Now, I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Nehemiah 8, we get some more details of the congregation. In that passage, it says the people assemble together. So this is their congregation. This is their assembly. They're gathered for public worship. And what did they do in that congregation? Well, it goes on to say, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And he read from it, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So the book of the law, which is the, the word of God, the Bible that they had at that time, was read publicly. And the scripture was then ex exposited. It goes on to say in that passage, and they, that the priests, gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So the word of God was not only read, the word of God was also explained. This is what the people of God did during that Old Testament assembly. And we still do that today as the new covenant people of God. In 1 Timothy 4.13, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, as a pastor, to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's why we still have a public reading of Scripture. To exhortation, it's another word for preaching, and to teaching, a way of saying explaining the Scriptures. And the New Testament tells us that we still have an assembly today and commands us not to forsake it. This is in Hebrews 10.25, which says, Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I read from the uh, NASB there. Now, both the ESV and NIV translate this as not neglecting on giving up uh, on meeting together. And that sounds like, well, just as long as I get together with other believers for a cup of coffee, you know, just maybe a small group, uh, maybe just, you know, a, a meeting on a Wednesday morning or whatever, that I have fulfilled this command. Now, when I was uh, pastoring in Montana, uh, there was a, a man from the community that would drop uh, in on occasion, and he was having some very severe struggles. And he is asking me, what do I do about them? I said, well, among other things, you need to come to church. And he always resisted that uh, counsel, and really it's not counsel, it's a commandment from God, on the basis of, well, I get together with another believer and we read the Bible together. We have a Bible study together. But that's not what Hebrews 10.25 is talking about. Uh, the verse does not say, don't neglect getting together, but this is what it says literally from the Greek. Do not forsake the 
assembly. Do not forsake the assembly. It has the definite article in front of it. Uh, that means it's something very specific. When I say definite article, I mean the word the. It, it gives some sort of notoriety to it. The assembly, given the Old Testament context of worship, which we see as the context of the book of Hebrews, is referring to that gathering of God's people for public worship, on the day of worship. It is the day of the holy convocation on the Sabbath day, as we see in Leviticus 23.3. And this verse says, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves or our own assembly. And that implies what? Well, it implies that this that there's a specific assembly called your own assembly. That there's an assembly you belong to. Which implies that you call one your own. That you have committed to one. You don't just move around from place uh, to place. So this isn't jumping around from one place to another or just getting together with other genuine believers or just showing up every once in a while. Uh, while it is a great blessing to get together with unbelievers, yet if it takes place of the assembly or belonging to assembly, then it's disobeying this commandment here. Uh, of course, there are times of being out of town when you join another assembly, but when you are able to make it to your own assembly and you're not providentially hindered, a legitimate excuse, like you're, you're sick or you're away, then you violate this commandment of God. While it's certainly permissible and a great blessing to get together with other believers, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with getting together for coffee or a small group or even an addiction group. But that's not the commandment here in Hebrews. It is the assembly. And the biblical background of that word is the holy convocation on the day of worship. And so we do not treat any other fellowship activity as a replacement or even on, as on equal ground as this day, as our gathering on the day of the assembly on the Lord's day. You can only say of the assembly that God Himself has commanded and called, that He has called it. Everything else is called by men. And the assembly is called by God through the lawfully appointed elders, through men. Psalm 107.32 says that it's the assembly of the elders. The assembly of the elders. Now this doesn't mean that it's about the elders, or that it's an elders meeting, or that it's just the elders meeting. Rather, this is referring to the assembly of God's people, which is called by and overseen by the elders of that assembly, elders who have been appointed by that assembly. When God calls us to worship, to assemble for worship, how do we know God has done that? You're driving around one day and you see written in the clouds, meet at TBC at 1030. Is that how God calls us to, to worship? That'd be great advertisement, wouldn't it be? Oh, I should go to TV, TBC. Uh, obviously, we don't, we don't advertise. But that's not how God calls us to worship. 
How does God call us to assemble together? Well, he does so through the elders of the assembly. That's why it's called the assembly of the elders. God calls the assembly through elders who oversee it and lead the service. And so when the assembly is duly called by the elders, then to not be there unless providentially hindered, and you know you get you get sick, uh, you're you're out of town, but unless there's some providential hindrance to not be there is to be in sin. God has called it. God has said, come into my presence and worship me. And to say no uh, on, my, my, on my own person is to exalt your will above God's will. And we do call two assemblies uh, on the Lord's Day, one in the morning and one in the late afternoon or early evening. Uh, the second service is a duly called uh, assembly. Now, some are not able to make it back because providentially hindered because of distance. And we've even had uh, some suggestion that we should have our second service uh, really immediately after lunch so we can all stay together, which, which is a good uh, a suggestion. But we call both a morning and evening uh, assembly. And, and What's the reason for this? I just want to give the reason for why we do this. Is this just uh, legalism? Well, first, because of the pattern in Scripture of both morning and evening sacrifice offered up to God. Uh, We see that that pattern there uh, in the Old Testament. But that's not all. Uh, We read Psalm 92, which starts out by saying this is a song of the Sabbath. song about the Sabbath. Okay, and so what does it go on to say immediately after saying this is about the Sabbath? Uh, It says, it is good to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness at night or in the evening. So this song for the Sabbath day talks about worshiping God both in the morning and at night. And that means evening there, not, not overnight. And even though Old Covenant worship is different in some respects to New Covenant worship, yet there's there's always a spiritual continuity. So you may be saying, well, there's a morning and evening sacrifice, but we don't offer up sacrifices, so how do you make that tie? Well, for example, Psalm 141.2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So let my prayer, my praying to you, be counted as incense. Now, someone may say, well, we don't offer up sacrifices and we don't do incense. So no prayer anymore, right? No. And we still pray, but just because some of these outer circumstances of sacrifices and incense have been removed doesn't mean that we throw out prayer or praising God. And so we follow the pattern of morning an evening as well, based upon the Old Testament and places like Psalm 92. And given uh, the fact that the Sabbath day or the Lord's day is not the Lord's half day or the Lord's morning, but the Lord's day, uh, we uh, have both a morning and evening uh, service to round off the whole Lord's day. And we believe we're on good grounds for understanding Scripture this way because this is how the church has historically understood it. It really wasn't until very recent in church history, particularly in America, where the evening service was uh, scratched out. Uh, The Reformed churches have really maintained 
this practice quite strongly. So based on those things, this is why we believe we should have both a morning and evening service, a morning and evening assembly. But the Sabbath, or the Lord's Day, is a day of public worship, of gathering together for worship. It's the day of the assembly. When you think of Sabbath, you should think of the day of the assembly, the gathering together of God's people for public worship. A second component that makes the Lord's Day a special and necessary day is a special meeting with Christ. And this is going to be much briefer. Again, in our culture, we, which is inescapable, uh, we tend to think of a special meeting with Christ almost exclusively as privately. You know, I come to the garden alone. That's when I truly meet with Christ. And whilst Christ, by His Holy Spirit, is indeed with, is with each one of us privately, individually, personally, by the indwelling of His Spirit, Yet we see from Scripture that Christ meets with us in a special way when His people are gathered on the Lord's Day. We get hints of this in the Gospel of John. John is careful to tell us when Jesus appeared to His gathered disciples. John 20.19 says that it was on the first day of the week when Jesus appeared to them. John even emphasizes that. that he says on the evening of that day, and the context is the, the day of the resurrection, which John already said in that passage was on the first day of the week. But on the evening of that day, and just in case we forgot, even though he already told us, he says again on the first day of the week. He's emphasizing the day when Jesus met with them. John wants to make sure that we know the day on which Jesus appeared to his disciples. Again, John is careful to tell us the day when he appeared to them a second time. In verse 26 of John 20, John says eight days later, Jesus appeared to them. Now, eight days by their count would again be on the first day of the week. Uh, remember that Jesus being raised three days later, by our count would be only two days later, but by their count it would be three days. Same with eight days later. It would be uh, seven days by our count. So it would be again on the first day of the week. Why does John keep telling us the day of the week that Jesus meets with his disciples? And only with his disciples. And only when they're gathered together. And only on the first day of the week. What's even interesting, you remember quote unquote doubting Thomas? He's like, ah, I don't believe. What did Jesus do to convince him? Did Jesus come to Thomas in the garden alone? No, Jesus didn't come again until the first day of the week when he was when they were gathered together. Was Jesus busy the rest of the week? Why didn't Jesus just stay with them continually for 40 days? Why does he only appear to them on the first day of the week? Well, God obviously does everything intentionally. God doesn't do things on a whim. Like, oh, what a coincidence. I didn't even notice that. Rather, the reason is that he's setting the new pattern for what he would continue to do to the end of the age, which is meeting with his gathered people in a special way every first day of the week. It's only when his people were gathered together, and they were together, 
and on the first day of the week when he met with them. And since he has ascended into heaven and is no longer bodily present, he no longer bodily meets with us, but he still meets with us. He meets with us by his spirit. The spirit was poured out on his gathered disciples on the day of Pentecost. Can you guess which day of the week that was? Yes, you, you, got it, you all got it right. It was the first day of the week. And so he meets with us in a special way when we assemble on his day. Through the call to worship, he greets us with his peace, as he did his disciples on earth. And think about that for a moment. What's the last thing that happened before he met with his disciples? They blew it big time, didn't they? They abandoned him. Peter even denied him. And what's the first thing Jesus says when he appears to them? Shame on you guys. Get your act together. You should be ashamed. You should be lucky I'm even here. Now what's the first thing he said to his disciples after they had blown it? Peace be with you. See, his peace is not based on our performance. His peace is based on his finished work. If you've blown it this past week, you have sin that you're struggling with, sin that you feel guilty of, when you come gather together with God's people, and that call to worship is, uh, is declared, it is God welcoming you to his presence, even though you have not measured up. He, is still, he still welcomes you. It's that peace be with you gathering, the peace be with you calling. He speaks to us through his word, read and preached. You understand that it's Christ who's speaking to you through his word. Central of which is preaching peace to us. He sings in the midst of the congregation, as Hebrews 2 says. And then he dismisses us with his peace as he did his disciples when he raised his hands and blessed them before departing from them. You see, Jesus established a new pattern in meeting with his people on the first day of the week. and We are part of that first group of disciples since we have communion with all the saints, the same Lord, the same body. Do you want assurance of his love? Do you want to grow in your assurance of salvation? Do you want to know and grow in His grace? Oftentimes we look for a private individual sign or indication or some individual method. What what should I do? Just tell me what to do. But it is here. It is here where we hear Him greet us with His peace. Preach the peace of His gospel to us. Your sins are forgiven. Christ has satisfied God's wrath against you. His blood was spilt for you. And just as he showed his disciples his body, his crucified body, so he does that to us in the supper today. His death is proclaimed when we take the supper because there was a body broken. There was blood spilt out. And these are symbols of that reality. And so we feed on Christ crucified in a spiritual manner when we partake of the supper. And then 
The final word we hear. God has the last word. The final word is peace be with you. Why can we hear peace be with you? Not because you perform well, but because of his merits and his sacrifice and his work. That's why every Lord's Day we hear peace be with you. And he, God puts his name on us and blesses us. And we walk away with that identity. You are a forgiven child. And that is the final word we hear as we leave this worship service. As he did with those first disciples, so he does with us on this day. There is nothing that replaces this. And so the Sabbath, the Lord's day, is a day of worship. It's the day of the assembly where we assemble with his people and where Christ himself meets with us by his spirit. And as we consider how special and necessary this day is, may we say with all truth and sincerity, I would not miss this meeting for the world. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this is just a, we know this is just a general framework and there's a lot of questions that, that, that have yet to be answered, which, Father, I hope that next week we can get some of those questions answered. We know that some have to miss because uh, they have a job that requires it. And in our day, sometimes it's, it's hard to find any work unless they require you to, to be gone for the assembly. And uh, we know that's difficult, but we know that it's not because they, they want to miss, but because sometimes work calls them to, and we, we don't live in an ideal situation. Now, there's times we get sick. There's times we're out of town. But other than that, we have a really important assembly that you meet with us, and you bless us, and you show your love to us. May we treasure this. May we love this. May we understand what this is about, that this is not only what you have commanded us, your disciples, to do. It's not only a duty, but it's a delight. May we know that the eyes of faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.